Well, picture with me, if you will, two sets of couples. The first couple is young, 22 and 23, respectively. They're healthy and beautiful. They have their whole lives ahead of them. Their hormones are raging. They've been married six months. They love each other dearly. The second couple is older, 88 and 89. Their hair is gray or non-existent. Their health, tenuous. They still have passion for one another, but they have 66 years of history together where they've weathered numerous challenges of life and they love each other dearly. When people marvel that they're still married, they reply, happily. Which of these two couples' love is more appealing to you? I think most of us would agree, even though we'd still like to have hair or not have it gray, that the couple who have weathered more together and still love one another are appealing. We're drawn to their understanding of one another, to the way they are at peace with one another and anticipate each other's needs, to the trust we see formed from that kind of stability. In our series, How to Be a Good, this morning our topic is how to be a good spouse. And it seems to me our culture is a bit ambivalent about marriage these days. On the one hand, we're deeply disappointed by marriage. We've all been touched by the pain of divorce, or we know couples who are sticking it out, but they aren't very happy together. We have high expectations for marriage that ironically tend to foster a pessimism towards it. Influenced by our culture's messages, we want someone like Jerry Maguire professed who completes us or who is our soulmate or our big break in life like Jack and Rebecca Pearson from NBC's This Is Us. But those people are hard to find and even when they are found and married, they aren't always what we thought. And yet as disillusioned as we may be by marriage, we can't seem to find a better alternative. We're still hopeful about marriage and long to be in healthy marriages. Even though cohabitation rates rise, sociological research continues to reveal the social, emotional, and even economic benefits of marriage for individuals, for families, and for societies. Marriage, it seems, is here to stay. Central to human life across the centuries, across the cultures, people continue to get married. It seems to strike at the core of one of the deep needs of humanity. Years ago, when Andy and I were anticipating having children, I remember thinking that as a woman, you know this is going to be painful. And yet you take comfort in the fact that somehow millions of women keep doing this. So there must be something worthwhile here. And indeed, there is. And the same is true for marriage. Yes, forming such old love can be difficult and a painful path, but it is also deeply rewarding and satisfying too. Like caring for infants, it's lots of work and lots of joy. Now, I know that there are a lot of things that could be said in today's message. It's important in any marriage to ensure you're doing well with finances, communication, conflict resolution, even sex. And every marriage could use some tips or guidance on any of those areas, maybe several. I wanna encourage you to spend some time or money investing in books, conferences, seeing a good counselor, or talking with friends in order to make improvements in any of those areas that could use shoring up in your marriage. But I thought what would be most helpful for our time today 
was to get at what's often underneath those presenting issues. What's marriage for anyway? And maybe if we understand what it's for, we can do it better then. We'll assume the traditional historic Christian Orthodox view of marriage here, but I hope you will find a nugget of wisdom in what we say, even if you aren't sure yet if you buy into Christian faith. I've got four groups of people in mind today. First, the marriage seeking, those who are not yet married who hope to be someday. It may be that one of the most important ways you prepare yourself for your future marriage, should God grant you that gift, is by forming a biblical view of marriage. Setting realistic expectations now may spare you a lot of turmoil later. Second, and this may be the majority of people here, the marriage sustaining, those currently married but not facing a major crisis. Small tweaks along the way may, may go a long way as a marriage is largely what we make of it in the day to day. Third, the marriage saving, those in difficult uh, places in your marriage for whatever reason. You may want to determine after today to get some help from a counselor. I think all of us on staff have benefited from the skills of counselors at one time or another and are very supportive of that and will resource you with that. Fourth, and we should all be in this category, the marriage supporting. If God instituted marriage, then we as his followers should seek to honor marriage in our own communities too. We're gonna look today at the first marriage performed by God in Genesis 2. Just before we do, let's recap Genesis 1. God created everything on the earth, land, sea, birds, and animals. And there is this repeated refrain each day, this sing-song, God saw all that he had made, and it was good. In Genesis 1:27 and following, we read, so God created people in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Genesis 2 then rewinds the tape, zooming in on the time period after the animals have been made, but before the woman is made. God has just formed Adam from the dust of the ground and places him in the garden to care for it. Let's pick up the story in Genesis 2, verses 18 to 24. It's pages three and four in your pew Bible, and it will also be on the screen. Genesis 2, 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So... The Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now or at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman for she was created out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, 
and they become one flesh. This passage makes four points about human relationships and marriage in particular. First, we were made for relationship. Do you know this is the first time in the Bible something is not good? And based on the Hebrew language here, it's emphatically not good. The only thing in all creation that disappointed God was seeing a human being in isolation. So God determines, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, if we read our own understanding of the word helper here, we're gonna misunderstand the point. Remember, there are temporal, linguistic, and cultural barriers when reading the Bible. Sometimes the word helper in our context connotes inferiority or subordination, as in the secretary of a CEO is this helper. But that isn't what is meant here. It means one who provides what is lacking in another. In fact, the word used for helper, Izur, is the same word used of God himself 16 of the 19 times it's used in the Old Testament. Here's just two examples. Psalm 121, one and two. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear. I will be your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But there's more. This is the only time this exact phrase suitable helper is used. And it means equal partner, someone corresponding to him, his counterpart. God sees Adam's aloneness and weakness and he knows it's not good. He wants Adam to know it too. So in verses 19 to 20, God prepares Adam for the gift of the bride. He parades all the animals in front of Adam. Horse, what beauty and grace. Lion, what power. Hummingbird, what dazzling speed. But who is there for Adam? Who is his equal partner, his counterpart? Undoubtedly, the closest companion he found was dog. Sorry, cat lovers. (laughs) But even dogs have their limitations. One by one, they march past Adam, and the scene concludes with this sad summary. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So God, the first anesthetist, acts, taking a part of Adam's body. Everything else in creation, remember, was formed from the raw material of the earth. He fashions woman. The intimacy, harmony, and equality of her being formed from Adam's side is astounding. Giddy with the knowledge only a gift giver has of what he's about to offer, God brings her to the man. And upon waking and seeing her, Adam exclaims the first poem in the Bible. In fact, the only human words recorded in the Bible before the fall in Genesis 3. At last... This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Finally, someone I can relate to. And his emphasis is on their similarities while acknowledging their differences. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. She is like him, but not exactly. Friends, this is why the longing for companionship marital or friendship 
lies in every human heart. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of the triune God who is himself relational. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is why loneliness is so painful, whether you're in middle school or middle age. This is why even when you have a good job and lots of friends and are very fulfilled, you may still be pained by your involuntary singleness. This is why losing a spouse of 30 years is so difficult. We were made for relationship. We don't need to apologize for that. This can be so freeing for people. Instead of wondering what they're doing wrong when they have this longing, they can just accept it as part of the human condition. Alone is not good. And begin seeking healthy ways to fulfill this longing. Of course, we're meant to find the deepest satisfaction in relationship with God, but we're also meant to find fulfilling relationships in our families, our friendships, and also in the church. Many do find this companionship in the marital relationship, but not all. Jesus, the only person who ever lived a perfect life, was not married. The Bible encourages healthy marriages, and it also encourages healthy singleness. And it does so by introducing a different kind of household or family in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.5 tells Jesus' followers, you are being built into a spiritual household of God. Throughout the New Testament, we see the accent on the spiritual family, the church, not simply the biological family. That's not that we're to give our own families the shaft. It just means we aren't to idolize them or marriage either. Single or married, we're to be a community of belonging in the church. This is one of our core values at City Church, that we extend and receive Christian love. Over the years, I've had single friends tell me that the loneliest hour in their week was Sunday morning at church. May it not be so among us. Every Sunday morning should be in part like going to a family reunion with your favorite relatives. You see Aunt Ethel and she asks about your new job. You meet the new baby your cousin had. I see lots of examples of this in our growth group, uh, but here's one. Some of the women are married. Some, for whatever reason, have found themselves single or single again. And let me tell you, these women care for one another like family. They are at each person's move, as that's a lot of work. They go and do house projects for one another. They go to one another's doctor's appointments when they're facing something scary. They care for one another, and it is beautiful to see. Alone is not good. We were all made for relationship, so let's stop apologizing for that and wondering what's wrong with us. Instead, let's focus on how to live out that desire in healthy ways. One of the ways many of us will live that out is through marriage, but marriage the way God instituted it. The second point this passage makes is that marriage is to be a covenant, not a contract. Genesis 2.24 gets at this. That is why the man leaves his father or mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, this isn't readily apparent to us, but the phrase is becoming united and one flesh is the language used in the Bible of covenant. We have very few covenants left in our culture. Even the word is rare. 
So let me try and explain this by contrasting it with something we're more familiar with, contracts. Think about any contract you've signed recently, a lease, a purchase agreement on a home, a letter of contract for employment. The requirements are clearly delineated. Assessment is based on whether the person meets the demands of the contract. There's generally an escape clause, and the penalties of not keeping the contract are often delineated. Covenants couldn't be more different. The focus is on sacrifice, not demands. The individual is accepted regardless of their performance. There's no escape clause. And when the contract is broken, the only recourse is to seek and grant forgiveness. Contracts are temporary and binding. Covenants are more durable and permanent. Contracts are conditional. Covenants are unconditional. Contracts put the interest of the individual above the interest of the relationship. In covenants, the relationship takes priority over the individual's needs. One of the few places where covenant still has some validity in our culture is in the love of parents for young children. I think we would all agree that the needs of an infant take precedence over the needs of the individual, which is why you're still all getting up in the middle of the night, as tired as you are. Marriages, God says, are intended to be more intimate and personal than legal contracts. They're more durable and binding and unconditional than our feelings or emotions. And oddly enough, despite what people may think, it is precisely under these conditions that real love flourishes. This is where the Christian view of marriage is very different from our culture's view today by and large. Many of us have been steeped in the consumerism of our culture. As long as a vendor is meeting our needs at a cost that is acceptable to us, we'll stick with them. But if another vendor comes along and delivers a better services or the same services at a better price, we feel free to break the original contract. And this view as a way of um, affecting our relationships. Relationships get commodified. We stay connected to people as long as they're meeting our needs at a cost acceptable to us. When we cease to make a profit, that is when the relationship appears to require more love and sacrifice from us than we're getting back, we feel free to cut our losses and drop the relationship. But marriage was intended to be a covenant, not a contract. In fact, that's precisely what we vow to one another in the wedding ceremony, for better or worse, in plenty and in want, in sickness and in health. Hello, these are reality statements. <laughs> there are always highs and lows in a marriage relationship, and covenant is sufficient for them all. Indeed, as Tim Keller points out in The Meaning of Marriage, the wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. Or as Mike Mason writes in his beautiful book, The Mystery of Marriage, we make vows because we cannot keep promises. Sadly, there are times when even the vows are broken beyond restoration. The Bible explicitly grants two occasions in which divorce is permissible, adultery and abandonment, and the tenor of scripture would include a third, cases of abuse, where divorce is permissible. Beyond those difficult circumstances, there's also the fact that it takes both partners being willing to work on the marriage. 
The Apostle Paul gave us some of the most freeing advice when it comes to any conflict resolution, including marriage. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. We are only responsible for our own part. You need not live in shame over a broken marriage when you've done all you can to save it. We honor the covenant of marriage by doing all we can to make it work. And when it doesn't, we grieve and we trust God for his healing and restoration. He makes all things new. But for many of us not facing those difficult instances, we need a reminder to stay the course even when it's hard. We need this third point that as a covenant, Marriage is learning to love the person you discover you married. (laughs) Those are people who've been married longer than 15 years. I love it. (laughs) Marriage is learning to love the person you discover you married. Let me try to unpack that. Sometimes people will argue that they don't need to stay in covenant with their spouse because they didn't marry the right person. If only I'd married someone more compatible, someone who was a little more fill in the blank. To be sure, there are people who are more compatible than others. I'm not denying that, which is why it's very wise to date for a long period of time and get input from family and friends you know well. But it's not true that you'll find greater happiness with someone else because no two people are perfectly compatible. Duke University Stanley Hauerwas has provocatively made this point when he said, quote, you always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if at first we marry the right person, just give it a little while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, mean we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for this stranger to whom you find yourself married, end quote. Now, I know that doesn't, that's like as romantic as a sink full of dishes, right? Um, but I think you'll find the wisdom in this. We may bristle at his extreme language, but it makes a fair point. As the years go by, you will experience seasons you did not anticipate. Human beings are the single most limitless entities in all creation. That's what makes the wedding day so scary. There's so much riding on this decision and you don't have total control over how it's gonna go, how the other person changes. Every marriage is comprised of two self-centered individuals whose feelings, including their feelings of happiness and love, are constantly in ebb and flow. A social scientific study several years ago supports this idea. It was a longitudinal study run by a sociologist at the University of Chicago, so she's got chops, published by the American Values Institute. The study found that two-thirds of unhappy marriages will become happy within five years if people stay married or do not get divorced. Two-thirds. So there's great reason to stick it out during a rough patch. Changing spouses in many cases does not lead to long-term happiness. In fact, the study found a positive correlation between marital commitment, what we have described as covenant, and marital happiness or satisfaction. So the greater the commitment, 
particularly in rough times, the higher the level of satisfaction reported. The study even concluded with this line, and this is awesome, the grass looks greener, but it's astroturf. <laughs> Those of us in the marriage-sustaining category may need to hear this this morning. It's a mirage to think it will be easier with someone else. Maybe, if it is not an extreme case, I've already said, we just need to hang in there a little longer till our feelings or circumstances change. Mike Mason says that instead of falling in love, we may, at times like this, have to march into it. But we will only march into it if we've determined ahead of time that marriage is a covenant and that we will learn to love this person, whoever we discover them to be. Fourth and finally, we must seek to honor all marriages in our midst, whether we're married or single. Now this can have a lot of implications. For the sake of time, let me just say a few. We can honor marriage by the way we speak or allow others to speak about their spouse in public. Sometimes in an attempt to be vulnerable or witty, a spouse can cross a line demeaning the other. Let's be careful about that. We can honor marriage by how we interact with other people's spouses. There should be proper limits, both physically and emotionally, in what is shared with someone who is not your spouse. And on the positive end, we can honor marriages by celebrating healthy patterns we see in a marriage. We can encourage couples who, take, who make time for one another amidst their busy schedules. Each one of us can find small ways to build up the marriages we see around us. As we close today, let's remember that the heart of any healthy relationship, including marriage, is that we are both fully known and fully loved. Being loved without being fully known pretty superficial and not really satisfying. Being known and not loved is our greatest fear. But being known and still loved as we are, warts and all, come what may, is freeing. And it is one of our greatest longings. And this is precisely how God has loved us. He knows our thoughts even before we think them. And yet he still sent his son to die for us. When the lights were turned on, when we were caught in the act, God still loved us. He came to save us and he continues to extend his love to us. He keeps covenant with us regardless of how we try to break the contract. He continues to extend his forgiveness, his grace, his healing, his life that is really life. And our relationships with one another, and particularly our marriages, are to be a reflection of his great love for us. They are to be a witness between us that the Lord is God. Let's commit today to being a people who reflect this love, however dimly, to our spouses, to one another, and to this world. For our sake, for this is a great way to live, old love is rich and for God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, it is such a difficult subject, marriage. 
And yet we rejoice in the truth of your word. You have made each one of us for relationship. And we can find that deepest need in you and in others, other family, friends, church you have gifted us with. Help us to engage in that in healthy ways, Lord. Help us to be a community that promotes covenant, that helps one another keep covenant by what we do and by what we don't do, that we may be a light to people in this world, that you are real, that you are good, that you are powerful, that you offer forgiveness, and that you give new beginnings. We ask this for our sake, because we do believe it's a good way to live, and for Jesus' glory. In his name, amen.